0: What did Ray Donahue know, and when did he know it? That question has haunted us since the moment we first picked up the trial transcript. What defense attorney doesn't give an opening statement in a capital murder case? Why didn't he lay out Oscar's alibi with supporting witnesses and point out the state's timeline of events was literally impossible? It defied the laws of physics. We can see from Donahue's handwritten notes that he clearly identified the scene staging. So why didn't he point that out to the jury?
1: Even more confusing were the moments during the trial when Donahue seemed genuinely angry at the state's case. He was livid over the judge's admission of Oscar's pocket knife, absent all evidence that it was, or even could have been, the murder weapon. He fought hard to exclude the non-expert, can't-say-it-matches, tire and boot heel evidence, and pushed TCSO Johnson and Bird on all of the prints the scenes that were ignored.
0: However, the rest of the case was a total shambles on the defense side, especially Donahue's complete lack of explanation for when the invoice book may have been stolen, and clearly pointing out to the jury that the person who staged the bike scene also left someone else's notepad. Why didn't the defense test the physical evidence? Why didn't Donahue explain that Morton and Blake disagreed about the presence of semen? Why didn't the jury hear that if there was semen, that it belonged to someone with type A blood, not Oscar's type O? As important as all of this evidence was to the defense, it wasn't as important as the suppression of the eyewitnesses, Gerber and Trueblood, who were completely disinterested, had no reason to lie, and clearly saw and talked to Oscar during the freezer loading. Powell's statement to Oscar, nobody saw you there, did they? Simply killed the defense.
1: Something about these two witnesses also seems to have killed Ray Donahue. The obvious answer is the one that was presented at the 1981 appeal hearing. Donahue had known about Gerber and Trueblood during the trial, didn't tell Oscar or call them to testify, and Donahue didn't want to face the witness stand at the hearing later that morning. Recently, a journalist asked us a really good question. What if Donahue's lie was not that he knew about the witnesses, but that he didn't know, and the witnesses were truly suppressed? The answer to that always seemed like a clear no, but we based that on the assumption that the Petty John invoice produced by the state at the hearing was real. After reviewing all of the testimony and statements of Gerber, his mother, Trueblood, Jim Irwin, Tracy Artley, and Artley's mother, we realized that we made a huge mistake in taking that invoice at face value.
0: As podcast listeners may remember... The invoice appeared suddenly, with no warning, in the middle of the July 16, 1981, appeal hearing on the suppression of Gerber and Trueblood as witnesses. Assistant D.A. O'Hara sprang the invoice on the defense while he had Ray Donahue's son, Tim, on the stand.
1: Mr. O'Hara, well, I have two original documents I'd like marked as respondents next in order. They are a Xerox copy of the originals that appear in Mr. Donahue's file. The court...
0: All right. Have counsel for the petitioner seen these documents?
1: Gardner, about three minutes ago, I'd like to have a copy if I could.
0: The invoice produced stated that Petty John interviewed Gerber and Mr. and Mrs. Gerber on June 28, 1976, and Jim Irwin, Trueblood, and Artley on the 29th.
1: By Mr. Gardner. Do you recall receiving a subpoena from me, Mr. Donahue, about six weeks ago?
0: Tim Donahue.
1: Yes, I do. Do you recall calling me up the day before you were supposed to be here and telling me you could not produce the file because you were not the executor?
0: I believe it was two or three days before, and I explained to you at the time that I was working in Mr. Donahue's office in the capacity of winding down his corporation. I also started my own business, and that I was not the executrix of his estate— and I wanted to notify you of that fact because I thought at that time that it would be incumbent upon you to subpoena the person in order
1: to get the documents that you desire. But you've brought the documents today without... with regard to the subpoena of the executrix. Pardon? You have brought the documents here today even though you were not the executor of the estate. That's correct. Mr. Gardner. Your Honor... I just don't think these documents can be authenticated without the executor of the estate. Mr. O'Hara, do you need some argument on that, Your Honor? The court. No, I don't think so. This witness indicates that he is in charge of the office, the documents are in his possession, and that he knows them to be authentic documents. That's a subject for cross-examination, but I think there's sufficient foundation to proceed further, so your objection is overruled.
0: Mr. O'Hara. Thank you.
1: Mr. Gardner, did Sergeant Deathridge from the Tulare County Sheriff's Office ever approach any of your office and go through this file? Yes, he did. When was that? I believe it was the day before yesterday. This is the file that your father put together with regard to his handling of Oscar Clifton's defense?
0: It would be the file that is at his office, which includes both himself, his secretary, and I'm sure Mr. Pettyjohn played a part in getting the file together also.
1: Are you aware of the attorney-client privilege?
0: Yes, I am.
1: Did you contact Mr. Clifton prior to allowing Sergeant Deathridge to go through the file?
0: No, I didn't.
1: Did you contact either Mr. Bernstein or myself?
0: No, I didn't. So, the DA's story was that the True Blood tape was found in the TCSO Major Crimes Office on Monday, July 13th, in a mixed box of old case tapes and files. Then, on Tuesday the 14th, TCSO Deathridge miraculously discovered an invoice in Donahue's files that had been missed during two previous searches and just happened to clearly state that Petty John had interviewed both suppressed witnesses during the trial. Rather than inform the defense of the fine, they just walked into court with the invoice on Thursday the 16th. This was brilliant because it gave the defense no opportunity to investigate the invoice, its authenticity, or the obvious inconsistencies. It was rushed into evidence without any question about why the only person who had been able to find it happened to be an original Richmond case TCSO deputy who now worked for the DA.
1: Tim Donahue, a recent deputy DA, had refused to allow Oscar's attorneys access to the same file, so it was impossible for them to know whether or not the invoice produced at the hearing had been there since 1976 or revised a day or two before to add the disputed interviews. Petty John denied having any memory of conducting the interviews and could not explain the lack of the written witness statements or reports. He took the safe, non-perjury route of neither confirming nor denying the actual interviews or what might have been said. That left the judge with the invoices, the only evidence that the defense had known about the witnesses during the trial. Oscar spent another 32 years in prison because of that one piece of paper.
0: Once we opened our minds to the idea that the invoice was faked immediately before the hearing, a lot of other things suddenly made sense. There were two particular things that always bothered us, so we decided to dig into them. The first was the fact that from September 1980 until the end of April 1981 Donahue and Petty John repeatedly insisted that they had not known about Johnny Gerber or any other boys on Garden Street during the trial. Why did their stories suddenly change right before the scheduled appeal hearing? The second troubling question was why did Gerber's mother, Brent Trueblood, Tracy Artley and Tracy Artley's mother all insist that they had never met Petty John and that he never interviewed any of the boys. Why would the DA walk into the appeal hearing with an invoice from Petty John that disagreed with the sworn statements of the people he supposedly interviewed?
1: The written history of Johnny Gerber in our files starts on September 21, 1980. Oscar wrote to Donahue to tell him that his new attorneys had located an eyewitness who was interviewed by TCSO but withheld from the defense. He asked Donahue for any help he could provide to prove that the witness that was turned away at the courthouse, Gerber, had been known to the DA but not to the defense.
0: Donahue immediately responded I am happy to hear that you state you are making some progress in your appeal motions. I do not know of any witnesses withheld by the prosecution during your trial.
1: Good luck to you in the future. Although Oscar had not provided the name of the witness, he did make it clear. That it was a Garden Street witness and that he'd come to court to offer testimony during the trial. If Donahue had known about Gerber, he should have recognized that story. The oddest thing about Donahue's response was the total and complete confidence of his answer. Normally, one would expect some questions Who are these witnesses? How were they located? Why do you believe that the DA knew about them at trial? There are only two explanations for Donahue's quick and full answer either he didn't think the witnesses had anything to do with him and he wasn't worried about it or he was giving a technically correct answer because he didn't know of any witnesses suppressed by the DA only the ones he helped hide from oscar
0: oscar and his attorneys assumed that donahue meant that he hadn't known of any possible eyewitnesses who could place oscar at garden street at 3:30 p.m. However, at the eventual hearing, after Donahue's death, the DA argued that Donahue had known about Gerber, but hadn't told Oscar back in 1980 because he didn't consider him suppressed. What exactly did Donahue mean by his response? The next defense contact with Donahue came in February 1981, when Oscar's attorney, Bernstein, called Donahue to discuss Gerber. Petty John addressed this conversation and the subsequent sequence of events at his June 15, 1981 deposition.
1: By Mr. Bernstein. Mr. Petty John, do you remember the first conversation you had with me over the telephone about whether you had interviewed someone who, a young boy, blonde-haired, in connection with the Clifton case? Do you remember talking to me the first time on the telephone about that?
0: I recall you inquiring as to if I had interviewed anybody.
1: Right. And that was in February? Right. Okay. And do you remember what your response was? My response was that I would have to check my notes, I think. Is that what you remember telling me?
0: Yes. That is our first conversation. And I went through my notes. I found that I had interviewed
1: him. Okay. You don't remember telling me that you had no recollection at all about ever interviewing a boy that matched that description?
0: I may have told you that, yes, before I checked my files.
1: Okay, and after you talked to me, then you checked your files? Yes. Did you check them immediately? I think I did. I'm not sure. Okay, did you... I don't know how much time you allow for immediately, but... Well, did you check within the next week or the next month? Oh, yeah. The next week? Probably
0: within a week. Oh, definitely. Definitely. The point that Bernstein was getting at here was that Petty John did not inform him that he had interviewed Gerber until April 29th, more than two months later.
1: And what did you find?
0: That I had interviewed this boy Gerber.
1: But you read through your entire file.
0: Yes, I looked through my entire file because it took me twice going through my notes and file to find it.
1: Did you go through it once and come to the conclusion that you had never talked to this boy?
0: Well, I didn't find it where I had talked to him, no. Okay. So, I went through it again.
1: Okay. Did Mr. Donahue ever ask you to look through your file?
0: Yes. Okay. Because he had talked to you first, told
1: me you had called. Did Mr. Donahue ever tell you that he talked to Mr. Clifton about a boy matching this description?
0: he could not recall anything about when I contacted him or when he contacted me regarding your call, said that he had nothing in his file regarding a Gerber boy. This statement of Petty John directly contradicts Donahue's excuse for changing his story shortly before his death. Donahue claimed that he had been confused when he wrote to Oscar and talked to Bernstein, and hadn't realized that the boy they were referring to was Gerber. However, Petty John repeatedly stated at his deposition that Donahue asked him to search his files for Gerber, even before Bernstein contacted Petty John directly in February of 1981. This was always a nonsensical excuse. Obviously, if Donahue had known of any boys they interviewed but did not disclose to Oscar, he would have clarified that back when Oscar first told him of the hearing. There is no way he would have let Bernstein make a sworn statement to the court without even asking the name of the witness he claimed to have never heard of.
1: Okay, so then it's...
0: And I, at that time, couldn't find anything in my file.
1: So it's...
0: So we're still very much in doubt and can't recall how we came to get that information. As I said before, I went through them once and didn't find them. And when I looked again, I came across those referring to a handwritten page with a date and Gerber's name and address. And? Which is the only notes I could find or that are in my file referring to Gerber. Right here we have big questions. Why didn't Petty, John, or Donahue find their copy of the invoice while they were searching their files? Twice. The invoice produced by the DA clearly had Gerber, Trueblood, and Artley's names right on it. Why didn't they find it in February? Or April. Why hadn't Petty John found his copy by June when he was giving the deposition? Why was TCSO Deathridge, working as DA investigator, the only person who was able to find the invoice in Donahue's file? What happened to the copy from Petty John's file?
1: Looking at those notes now today, are you, is the most that you're able to say is that based on these notes that you may have talked to those boys... Yes. Okay.
0: Or, for some reason or the other, I didn't talk to them, and at the time crossed crossed out, which I have a cross mark there indicating that I either was not going to contact them or had already contacted them. I don't know which.
1: This statement is further indication that the invoice produced by the DA at the hearing did not yet exist on June 15, 1981. Additionally, This testimony by Pettyjohn was extremely damaging for the DA because it raised a reasonable doubt that Pettyjohn was the investigator who had interviewed Gerber and pointed the finger back at TCSO. At this point in June, TCSO had no way to anticipate that a judge would order a full search for a Gerber tape and that the true blood tape would then be discovered in July. Was the combination of the reasonable doubt raised by Pettyjohn and the addition of T.C.S.O. Chamberlain's interview of Trueblood too much to risk the T.C.S.O. asked Pettyjohn to change his invoice to match his notes and forge prior defense knowledge of witnesses during the trial Donahue was no longer alive to suffer the consequences and with all the evidence destroyed Oscar could have been on the road to walking free
0: so according to Pettyjohn's testimony defense attorney Bernstein called Donahue in February and Donahue immediately called Petty John to discuss that conversation. Bernstein also called Petty John, who told him that neither the name Gerber nor the description of a boy on Garden Street were familiar, and that he was not the person who did that interview. On March 2, 1981, Bernstein reconfirmed that neither Donahue nor Petty John could find any mention of Gerber in their files, and Bernstein filed a sworn declaration with the court to that
1: effect. The big unknown is... What changed between March 2 and April 29? There were no further inquiries from Bernstein, and it appears that the March answer was given after at least one review of the files. Why would Petty John go through his files again at the end of April? How did he find a page of handwritten notes that he'd missed before? Why didn't he and or Donahue find their copies of the invoice? Why didn't they find signed statements, which he did for all other witnesses in the case, from any of the boys if Petty John truly interviewed them? Why didn't he write a report as required for all PI work? None of those questions were ever directly asked or answered.
0: The most obvious answer is that someone got to Donahue and told him to say that he knew about the witness during the trial. It's clear from a draft we have in the file that Petty John and Donahue worked together on Petty John's letter to Bernstein that changed their story in April. Handwriting from both of them is on the draft and the final letter was typed by Donahue's secretary, but sent from Petty John.
1: So, what do we know about the invoice? Not a lot. We have all of Petty John's invoices from the case, and it was the last one submitted and paid. It looks like all of the others, except that all of the prior invoices were marked paid by Donahue with a note of the date. The last invoice was marked paid by someone else and included a check number, Since Ray Donahue didn't sign that last invoice, it's completely possible that it was created after his death.
0: What would that have entailed? Nothing more than Petty John retyping his original invoice and inserting four interviews that never actually happened. There are several things that make this seem not only possible, but highly likely.
1: Number one the lack of Ray Donahue's handwritten note at the bottom of the invoice.
0: Two, indications from a hand-drawn circle and signature that Petty John's writing on the invoice was from 1981, after he developed the neurological condition that gave
1: him a tremor. Number three, the lack of signed witness statements or a summary report. Those four interviews are the only ones contained in all of the invoices that are not supported by another Petty John document. He was an FBI investigator for 30 years and was extremely procedure and document-oriented. Four,
0: on the day of the supposed Trueblood, Irwin, and Artley interviews, Petty John billed for being in court from 10 to 12 and 1.30 to 4.30 and also for making a trip to Tulare to photograph one of Oscar's past job sites. Those photos were entered at trial, so that trip did occur. It is unclear when there would have been time for the interviews.
1: Number five, The handwritten notes that Petty John claimed to have found in April 1981 were clearly nothing more than his daily courthouse notes made every day during the trial. Although we don't have copies of the originals, Oscar typed up an exact description of the three pages. There's no doubt from the other events on those notes that they'd occurred during the trial, and none of them referred to interviews or investigative work conducted by Petty John. That raises the question of how Petty John explained finding out about the boys on Garden Street. His deposition had a few answers. Okay, how did you find you were supposed to interview a boy matching that description? Donahue asked me to. And where were you when he asked you? I was in court,
0: I think, that morning. Was it in the morning? Now, let me say I have no recollection of how we came to this. To get this information, either Mr. Donahue or myself. So we are still very much in doubt and can't recall how we came to get that information.
1: Fair enough. And the information, your testimony here about the information you received is based on what is a page of notes here, which has 9 a.m. at the top. Is that correct?
0: Yes. So clearly the handwritten note, which said June 28th, 1976, 9 a.m., did not, in fact, refer to the time he went out to interview Johnny Gerber, but rather when he got to court that morning and started his trial notes for the day. Again, these were not notes from interviews, but information he wrote down at the courthouse. Number six, one of the more bizarre inconsistencies on the invoice is the reference to Mr. and Mrs. Gerber. Johnny's parents were divorced, and in 1976, he lived with his mother and stepfather, Mrs. and Mr. Easley. There is no way that Petty John looked up the family in the phone book or ever met the Easleys. Again, as a former FBI investigator, Petty John was meticulous about details, spelling, addresses, dates, and times.
1: Number seven, the notes also said Mrs. Thomas, their paperboy. This seems to give a big clue as to the mysterious source of the information in Petty John's notes, the source he claimed that neither he nor Donahue could remember. TCSO Sergeant Bird had been to the Thomas house to interview them on June 22, 1976. It's undisputed that Mr. and Mrs. Thomas were the source of the information that Brent Trueblood had been at their house during the freezer loading and Byrd then assigned Chamberlain to interview Trueblood on June 23rd, 1976.
0: We have absolutely no doubt that the source of the names Gerber, Trueblood, and Artley on Petty John's court notes was Bob Bird. It's also clear that Petty John wasn't going to lie and make up a false source. There's no risk of perjury if you simply say you can't remember. Although TCSO never produced a tape of an interview with Gerber, his mother insisted that the person who interviewed Johnny had been a police
1: officer. The DA conceded in 1983 that Donahue had never been given a transcript of Trueblood's statement or heard the tape, so any awareness of the witness was limited to whatever he was told by Byrd or Powell at the courthouse. From Petty John's notes and deposition, It appears that he was told that TCSO had interviewed the boys. They had no information, and Donahue told Petty John not to bother to go out to interview them. This is consistent with Petty John's deposition testimony that he crossed off the boys' names in his notes because they didn't have any information, and that he may not have interviewed them. Statements that Petty John made prior to the production of the invoice in July.
0: All of this seems like strong circumstantial evidence that the version of the invoice produced at the hearing did not exist prior to the week of July 13th, 1981. Between September 80 and April nineteen 1981, Petty, John, and Donahue repeatedly denied any knowledge of the boys on Garden Street and claimed to have searched their files multiple times and found nothing to contradict their memories. Even after finding his court notes, Petty John refused to say for certain that he had actually conducted any interviews of the boys, could not describe the boys, their parents, or their homes, and could not explain the lack of statements or reports. The only person who was able to find the invoice with the names of the boys in Donahue's case file was an original TCSO investigator working for the DA the day after the True Blood tape was discovered, and Petty John's copy had simply disappeared from his file. The invoice contained multiple irregularities and seemed drawn directly from Petty John's deposition a month earlier, including the mistake about the name of the Easleys.
1: However, all of this evidence pales in contrast to the fact that every single person who would have had independent knowledge of the boys' interviews categorically denied ever meeting or being interviewed by Petty John. This included Johnny Gerber's mother, Brent Trueblood, Jim Irwin, Tracy Artley, and Tracy Artley's mother. Gerber's mother, Mrs. Easley, attended the July 81 hearing with Petty John present, and she insisted that he was not the man who interviewed Johnny in 1976. Mrs. Easley described receiving a call from a man who clearly identified himself as a police officer. Petty John was asked how he identified himself to witnesses during the investigation. When you call up a witness for the first time, can you remember, did you have a standard line which you would tell them about, who you were, and what you did? Yes. And what was that line? What would you ordinarily tell someone?
0: Well, I gave them my name, of course, and that I was working for Mr. Donahue, was the attorney who was the attorney for Oscar Clifton, who was being prosecuted for the murder of this child. I probably gave her
1: one of my cards. Okay. Can you describe Mrs. Easley for me? Describe who? Mrs. Johnny Gerber's mother. I couldn't, no.
0: This is consistent with all of the testimony in the case. None of the witnesses ever expressed any confusion about Petty John or who he worked for. It came up multiple times during the trial, and everyone said he clearly and properly identified himself. Obviously, Petty John didn't remember meeting Mrs. Easley either. Mrs. Easley described the man who interviewed Johnny as driving a gold sedan. Petty John drove a red station wagon. She said the man showed her a badge or ID in a flip wallet and did not give her a card. Mrs. Easley had no horse in the race. She came forward because she felt that Johnny had seen and talked to Oscar that afternoon, just as Oscar had always claimed. And that was the story that they had told law enforcement in the summer of 1976. She didn't know any of the parties in the case and didn't have any discernible motive for lying about not recognizing Petty John.
1: The other boys mentioned on the mysterious invoice were Brent Trueblood and Tracy Artley. Trueblood did not testify at the 1981 hearing. He said that he had no present-day memory of the events and could add nothing to his 1976 statement to TCSO Chamberlain. He did, however, sign a sworn declaration on September 19, 1981, which read, I can only remember being interviewed by one person in connection with the Oscar Clifton case.
0: It is undisputed that person was TCSO Chamberlain on June 23, 1976. So Trueblood also denied the supposed Petty John interview claimed by the invoice. Although he could not add anything to his original story about December 26, 1975, he did testify at the June 1st, 1983 hearing about whether or not he had been interviewed by Petty John.
1: Do you remember during the summer of 1976 being interviewed by a police officer in connection with the Oscar Clifton case? Yes. Did he show you some photos? I don't remember. Was the interview tape recorded? Yes. Is that the only time you remember being interviewed in connection with that case back in the summer of 1976? Yes. You don't remember any defense investigator interviewing you? No. That wasn't enough for the judge. He really, really, really wanted Trueblood to say that Petty John had interviewed him. So the judge took over the questioning of Trueblood, the court. All right. Now, it was a really important matter. So if somebody had come to talk to you about the trial, it would have made a big impression on you. Would it not, sir? Yes, As you sit here now, you can remember only one police officer or law enforcement officer talking to you before or during the trial. Is that correct? Yes. As you think about it yourself and what you know about it yourself, if somebody else had talked to you, would you remember that today? Yes. True Blood pretty much testified that he didn't remember anything from the freezer loading day ever seen Oscar, the details of the Chamberlain interview, or even how old he was in 1975. So he clearly was not trying to help Oscar get a new trial. However, he was always consistent and clear about not being interviewed by Petty John. So why did the invoice say otherwise? The next person
0: to testify on the issue at the 1983 hearing was Mrs. Keck, the mother of Tracy Artley, the last boy mentioned on the invoice.
1: To your knowledge, in the summer of 1976, was your son ever interviewed in connection with a murder case? I don't believe so. Is it the type of thing that you think, if he was interviewed, you would remember? Yes. Again, the judge jumped in on the issue. The court. It doesn't happen every day of the week? Right. Right? Right. Now, to your knowledge, was Tracy ever interviewed by any law enforcement officer with respect to the Clifton trial? No, he was never interviewed. Were you ever interviewed by any law enforcement officer with respect to the Clifton trial? No. Mrs. Keck was a prosecution witness, called to throw doubt on any claim that Tracy may have seen Oscar during the freezer loading, and she had a calendar entry that said he had visitation with his dad that day, and had likely gone for some portion of it. She had absolutely no reason to lie about whether or not Tracy had been interviewed by Petty John, and she certainly wasn't there to help Oscar get a new trial.
0: Tracy Artley also testified on the matter at the 1983 hearing.
1: Mr. Artley, do you ever recall being interviewed in connection with a murder in the summer of 1976? No, I don't. Mr. Artley, more specifically, were you ever interviewed by any law enforcement officer with respect to the Clifton trial? No, I wasn't. Again, no confusion on the issue. Tracy and his mother insisted that nobody ever questioned or interviewed Tracy about the case in 1976.
0: There was one more name on Petty John's court notes from June 29, 1976, and it was also transformed into an interview on the found invoice. The name was Jim Irwin, the man that Bill Rose hired in early 1976 to finish up the remodeling project on Garden Street. It's unknown why he was on Petty John's notes from that day. Maybe there was a question about his start date on the project. In any case, Jim Irwin also denied ever meeting Petty John or being interviewed by him on June 29, 1976, as the invoice
1: claimed. Irwin did not testify at the 1983 hearing, but he signed a declaration. And the defense and DA agreed on the record as to what his testimony would be. If Jim Irwin were called to testify, the parties agree he would testify as follows. Number one, he worked on the Garden Street house owned by William Rose in 1976, but he never employed any boys to assist him. He did not work on the house in 1975. Number two, he was not contacted prior to or during the trial by any law enforcement personnel or by Robert Pettyjohn. Number three, he does not remember speaking to Greg Bernstein in 1981. He believes he may have talked with a deputy district attorney in 1981. He cannot recall the name of this person.
0: So, the invoice produced at the 1981 hearing claimed that Pettyjohn interviewed Gerber, Irwin, Artley, and Trueblood on June 28th and 29th, but all of the supposed interviewees denied it under oath and penalty of perjury, and Petty John himself refused to assert that the interviews actually occurred while he was under oath. This is something that would have been thoroughly investigated and blown apart by the defense if they had known about the invoice before it was allowed into evidence. The judge in 1981 denied the defense objection to the invoice and accepted Tim Donahue's word that the invoice had been in the file since 1976, Tim would have had no firsthand knowledge of that fact and the judge ignored his obvious conflict of interest as a recent deputy DA.
1: What would have happened if the DA had not shown up at the 1981 hearing with that invoice in his hand? Number one, TCSO Chamberlain's testimony confirmed Trueblood's statement and his photo lineup ID of Oscar. He stated that he gave the interview tape to his supervisor, Bird, and that's the last he knew of it. Number two, TCSO Bird said that he didn't remember the tape, but he would have told Powell about the witness. Number three, D.A. Powell testified that he didn't remember the tape, statement, or witness or ever hearing True Blood's name prior to 1981, but that he was sure he would have told Donahue about the witness. And number four, Petty John said he didn't remember the undocumented witness interviews on the invoice, including Johnny Gerber. Jim Irwin, Brent Trubled, and Tracy Artley. He didn't have sworn statements or a written report to back up the invoice.
0: Neither TCSO nor Petty John could explain why every single other witness interview had been transcribed and fully reported. The invoice was literally the only evidence that the defense had known about Trueblood and Gerber prior to 1980-81. The judge made a lot of statements on the record about how troubled he was by the circumstantial nature of Oscar's conviction and new evidence appearing after the trial, but the invoice seemed to prove that technically the defense had known about Trueblood and Gerber and there were not sufficient grounds to overturn Oscar's conviction. There is no doubt that without the invoice, the conviction would have been vacated and a new trial ordered. As we all know, that was impossible without the evidence destroyed by Byrd in 1977, and Oscar would have walked free.